The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in September 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the director and now the newly appointed artistic director of the American Repertory Theater in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Diane Paulus. Up to now, Diane has been known for her directing work, and she's soon to start in Cambridge. We'll get to that during the next hour or so. But let me just run through a few of Diane's credits over the years. She was the creator and the director of The Donkey Show, based on a Midsummer Night's Dream, a Midsummer Night's Disco in this case. We'll talk about that. Also, the conceiver and director of Swimming with Watermelons, other shows that Diane has directed as playwright and director, Eli's Coming, and as director, the current production of Hair in Central Park, the 40th anniversary edition by the Public Theater at the Delacorte Theater in Central Park. Diane, that's a project that actually for you started, I guess, about a year ago, September of last year. There was a three-night concert, which now has become a long-running production, which has been extended three times now through September 14th. How did you get involved in that a year ago? Well, I had been uh, doing some work at the Public Theater and building a relationship with Oscar and the staff there. And Oscar Eustace. Oscar Eustace, yes. And um, I got a phone call. Uh, this was now a year and a half ago. And uh, the call came to me and said, you know, we are thinking of reviving hair. Are you interested? And... I almost dropped the telephone because I was so excited to hear this. I mean, hair for me um, was absolutely, you know, the musical of my childhood, Um, which is a strange thing because I actually never saw it live, but I grew up on the album. Um, I saw the movie, Um, but it was really the music and the songs. And then later in life as a theater person, learning about hair and learning about how it was developed at the public and this kind of unusual path it took to the Cheetah nightclub and then onto Broadway and what it meant as a theatrical event. And, you know, I I read the liner notes from the album and the CD, you know, of, of the recordings and heard about actors crawling over the seats at the Biltmore. And it just totally caught my interest as the ultimate kind of theatrical experience. And in its day, it was very cutting-edge and experimental. You're known for experimental theater, so this is kind of fitting that here you are staging the revival of it. And how much did you know, other than the cast album, about the original production when you went into this? You know, I knew nothing. Uh And it was so fascinating because the first thing that was sent to me from the public was a Xerox copy of the script. And I took it and I read it. And, of course, you know, I know all the songs. I knew all the lyrics to all the songs by heart. So I was reading the text and I thought, wow, you know, I I never knew it worked like this because it has nothing to do. Well, very little to do with the structure of the movie. Um, And then I later found out that what was sent to me, that Xerox script was a Xerox copy of a paperback version of Hair that was published from the public theater off-Broadway production. And I think it was like a personal copy of Oscar Eustace's that he found in some second-hand bookstore. You know, like a penguin pocket paperback. It was commercially available. Yes, it was commercially available. I think that Joe Papp had made a deal to to get the off-Broadway script published. Um, then I later found out, uh, you know, that this was not sort of the Broadway version. So I was then sent the Tams Whitmark kind of Bible of hair that is the one that's licensed around the country and done at regional theaters and colleges. 
And it was completely different from the version I had read. So this began my education in the actual, what I call, you know, the folios of hair. I I feel like now I'm I'm very acquainted and it's, you know, the first folio, the second folio, the quarto of hair. Um, And actually the version that we're doing in the park this summer is yet a whole kind of new version of hair that we've put together especially for this anniversary. And did you talk at all with the composer, Galt McDermott, and anybody else cons- uh, who was involved with the original hair? Did you oh, yes. pick their brains? Yes. I mean, the first thing, uh, the, the first step in my process on this project was to come in for a meeting with Galt McDermott and Jim Rado. And uh, to meet them, speak with them, talk to them about what hair, you know, meant to me growing up and how I felt it should be executed, you know, as a theatrical event for our audiences today. And that, you know, led to uh, the work on the concert version, which was September uh, 2007, which celebrated the 40th anniversary of the off-Broadway opening at the Public. It opened in 1967. It was the first production that Joe Papp produced at 425 Lafayette. Amazing that he uh, opened that, you know, historic theater now in our city with hair. Um, and now we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the Broadway uh, version of Hair, which went to Broadway in uh, the spring of 1968. So often when you do revivals, there's a tendency for people to want to be precious about recreating the moment. Now, Hair was a piece entirely of its time. It was as up-to-date and modern as musical theater had ever seen. Now... Even more so, I would dare say. Okay. But now some could say it's a period piece. But you do have uh, Jim Rado and Galt McDermott still around. What were they open to change? And if so, what are the changes? As you say, you didn't know what the original show was. For so many people, hair is just a legend. So what was the work you were able to do with them on your version? Right. Well, I have to say I've had this incredible uh, partnership uh, with both Galt and Jim. Um, And uh, what has been so fulfilling about the relationship is their interest in the material today and really looking at it uh, afresh. And Galt said something to me, you know, a, a week or so ago. He said, you know, when hair was done back in the day, in 68, it was so shocking. You know, there were so many things about it that were breaking boundaries, and not even theatrically, but just sort of, you know, social, you know, norms of saying things like, you know, I guess I can say it on the radio here, like, you know, fucky, fuck, 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 to say that word, you know, on stage. Let to, alone a song called Sodomy. Let alone <laughs> a song called Sodomy, let alone people taking their clothes off. Just everything oh, we about... we got six and a half, almost seven minutes in before we discussed the nudity. <laughs> right. I just was clocking it. But, you know, what Galt said was, back then it was so shocking. And in a way, especially when it went to Broadway, he told me, there was a real impulse, a kind of creative impulse behind the material, which was, we are going to shock the bourgeois audience. That's why we're here. And actually, the material today, um, that's a separate thing we should talk about. I still think it's startling and fresh and, you know, uh, subversive in its own way. But it doesn't, let's face it, it doesn't have the shock value that it did. And it's even entered the popular culture because songs like Good Morning Starshine and Age of Aquarius, I mean, they were so heard in that period and they're probably now still played on oldies radio stations. Yes, exactly. So people know the music and, and, and it's part of our culture. But... Galt said he feels that now people can actually be more moved by the show because it's not about just shock value. There's something about the kind of heart and soul of the show that I think is 
is coming through in 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 a very powerful way, and I think it's because uh, that aspect of the material um, is able to be received. Um, even more deeply now. Well, when hair was first staged in the late 1960s, this country was involved in what became a very unpopular war, the mm. Vietnam War, and the country was very divided. I, I went through that whole year. I can remember it myself. You were a child. Right. I was not. Um, the country was very deeply divided. And I wonder now, 40 years later, we're in another war, but it's not the same atmosphere as it was in 1967-68. What sort of reaction do you get from people? Back then, there were political protests going on. People were marching with banners. What kind of reactions do you get now after the show? Well, you know, it's so interesting because, again, you know, this question of what is it to do a revival? What is it to do this period piece? And I I feel what we are experiencing with hair now is this this moment for audience and our culture to sort of meditate and reflect on that very unpopular war 40 years ago and and to um, see it and have the opportunity to kind of relive what it meant then to protest it. Um, I mean, a, a, a couple of anecdotes come to mind. Uh, one of the actresses in the company, Casey Sheet, told me this story uh, last week, actually, that the show ended, and uh, there's this big dance party on the stage, and then, you know, the actors were leaving, and there was this man, you know, sort of a 56-year-old man in a business suit, you know, with his glasses in his hand, crumpled on the stairs, right, by the edge of the stage, sort of the stairs that go up to the audience, and he was sobbing. And, you know, the ushers were coming around him. Nobody understood what was happening. Maybe did he fall? Was he hurt? You know, and she was one of the only actors left on the stage as she came over and she sort of put her hand on his back and he looked up and he was, you know, tears streaming down his face. And he said, I was tear gassed in Vietnam and looked at her and started talking about the war. It was almost like a trigger reaction of memory. And what was so interesting is then she said he started interpolating quotes from the show. So he was talking about Vietnam, talking about his experience, sort of like flash memories, and then saying things like, but I got my teeth, I got my life, I got my soul, I got my guts, you know, which is one of the songs in the show, I Got Life. And then, you know, sort of came out of it through conversation with her and, you know, picked himself up and, you know, was able to carry on. But I, I, I just think, you know, back then in 1968, one of the original cast members told me doing hair was so profound because they would finish the show and young men would come up to them and say, what do I do with my life? Do I go? Do I go and kill people? Do I fight for a war I don't believe in? Should I just commit suicide and not do that? I mean, so this one actress, the original company member said it was so heavy. I mean, there she was. She said, I was an actor. I, you know, I, I believed in the show, but I, you know, it was so real because it was happening so immediately that she couldn't even deal with hair for 40 years. She came back to see the concert last year. It was the, she said it was the first time she was able to come back and encounter the material um, because she finally felt it was time to touch it again. And how about reactions from people who currently have loved ones or friends serving in Iraq? or Afghanistan. Do you get reactions from those people relative to what's going on today? You know, I haven't had an encounter with anyone, you know, with family overseas right now. Mm-hmm. Really what what has, what you know, come up over and over and over again are people's reactions about, you know, things have not changed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 it, it's sort of, you know, everyone's reaction at the end of the show, oh my God, we haven't changed. What happened? What did we believe in back then? We had so many dreams, especially people who 
were young people at the time wondering, you know, what did we amount to? You know, and then I've also encountered a lot of young people, teenagers, who find out from their parents at the show. You know, I was with a, a family and there was a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old daughter and their mother said, well, I marched on Washington. I was at that protest. And the daughter said, Mom, you never told us this. You know, you have to talk about these things. You know, it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of like this piece of our history that I think in a way has been buried for obvious reasons, or we like to bury it, that is just, you know, through the presence of the show coming out and touching us in terms of what we're dealing with in our politics, in our country, in our nation today. The three of us sitting here may have varying memories, but we were all around perhaps in the 60s, a pretty young couple of us. Um, But I imagine you've got a cast full of people, none of whom came close to being around in the 60s or even the 70s where the hippie culture was still drifting in in 71, 72. How do you how did you go about indoctrinating them into what the culture was at that time? Right. Uh, that was so important to me. Um, I mean, I, I, I was a toddler in the 60s. So my, you know, my kind of teenage years was the late 70s, early 80s. And I, you know, I feel like I missed my decade. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I just, you know, I, I studied about the living theater in college. I mean, I just felt, you know, I really felt like if I had only been alive in the 60s. Um, so in a way, working on hair for me, has been a chance to kind of live it, you know, to, to touch it and be it and experience it. And then the opportunity to transmit that to people, um, you know, has been kind of, you know, an incredible experience. You're right. The cast is young. I mean, our youngest cast member graduated from high school, you know, in June. Um, and um, I think encountering uh, this show and not only learning about the 60s, but learning about how the show functioned in its time, you know, as, as a theater piece, um, has been so inspiring for the people in the cast, because they don't tend to think about theater, you know, the way I think Jim and Jerry Ragney thought about it, um, you know, w- when you talked about it being of its time. It was so of its time. I mean, it's, I, I, I think about that moment in the trip in Act Two when, um there's a there's a figure of Abraham Lincoln, you know, and it's an African American woman as as dictated in the script playing Abraham Lincoln, and John Wilkes Booth comes and you know is about to shoot her, and she's singing happy. They're singing Happy Birthday, AB Baby, and he's about to shoot her, and we witness this assassination on stage, and you're talking about seeing that on stage, you know, in a year when you're dealing with assassinations of major figures in our country and dealing, you know, in the in, in a recent history of assassination of our president and. For the cast, it was about them understanding what it meant to be part of the counterculture, what it meant to be a hippie, not just what we tend to know of it now, which is kind of fashion and style and kind of, you know, um, music taste, but to really understand from the inside out what it meant um, you know what it meant to wear those clothes. Why? Why having long hair uh, was a was a, a philosophical statement. What it what it meant not to wear makeup in these things. You know, um, and I have to say, Jim Rado was a which was a huge resource because he you know he really came and talked to the cast and talked about you know uh, what it meant like things just like you know Jim would talk to the cast about what it meant for men you know young men to be able to have physical contact with each other, you know, that that was 
a radical thing, you know, that that it was okay, you know, for two men to hug each other and like express that kind of physical affection. You know, that was a big deal in in the late 60s and something that was really liberating. Um, you know, and this thing with hippies that like you would walk down the street and, and you'd make eye contact with people. And it was like you just had the courage to look at someone in the eye and you'd find each other across a room, across a cafe, across, you know, Washington Square Park and kind of find each other and, and, and seek each other out. And, you know, everything from little details of, of, of uh, you know, handshakes and contact and conversation and and then all the anecdotes about, you know, how they made the show like um, – Jim telling me the story of how he went to a cafe. They were in rehearsal at the Public Theater, and he went out, you know, for lunch. And he's sitting in this cafe. You know, it's probably 1967. And this guy comes in, a big old hippie with, like, a staff, which has, like, you know, a, a wizened staff with rocks in it and crazy hair. And he came over to Jim, and he said, have you seen Donna? I'm looking for Donna. You know, she's my uh, – uh, what's the lyric? She's my uh, – 16-year-old virgin virgin heard a story, you know, she got busted for her beauty. And, you know, so this guy was, like, spouting these... And, you know, Jim said, oh, my God, that's a song. Like, to understand that these songs literally came off the street. I mean, they were really things that we were, people were saying. And then they just, you know, had the courage to put it right on the stage. You know, not with hindsight even, like, five years. It was stuff right off the street that they were putting into the show. Well, you talk about being a toddler in the late 60s. You're a trained concert pianist. You studied the, the School of American Ballet. You uh, actually uh, worked in New York City Ballet with when George Balanchine was artistic director. How did you get your start in in theater itself? What what, what were your earliest uh, urges or impulses to be in right, theater? Right, right. Well, I... I studied music and then I did dance uh, as a child in uh, all the children's ballets that New York City Ballet does, you know, Nutcracker, Capella, Harlequinade. And yes, I happened to be there when Balanchine was alive and, you know, spent performances, you know, in the wings watching all those great Suzanne Farrell, Patricia Moore, like the heyday of New York City Ballet. And, and you know, Balanchine was a genius for those story ballets. You know, he just knew how to tell a story through through movement. And I think that was like hugely inspirational for me to to, to be exposed to that um, kind of power of of theater. Um, and you know, I, I was very serious about the piano, and my teacher wanted me to go to Juilliard. And I was kind of coming to that moment where you know I was told you're going to have to practice six hours a day, and you know go into that sort of junior division at Juilliard. And I just I loved being with people, you know, ever since I was a kid, I just loved interacting with others and being in a group. And, you know, I had impulses to direct things always growing up. And I just realized I sort of looked into my heart, even as I was, you know, like a 12 year old kid. I thought, you know, I don't want to be by myself at a piano practicing. I want to be in a group. And I actually joined a company in New York um, called the First All Children's Theater. It was a, a company run by Meredith Stein. It was a professional children's theater company right here in Lincoln Center. And I did that for years. And um, that was, you know, a huge experience for me. We did performances all over the country. We toured. We went to Washington, D.C. We did benefits on Broadway and, you know, uh, did original work by Liz Suedos and Richard Peasley and Charles Strauss. Uh, and then, um, you know, I, I think I got the bug, went to Harvard, actually, where I got my undergraduate degree and thought I'd go into politics and wanted to be the mayor of New York. Well, that's it. I mean, you said <laughs> you, you said you went off to Harvard, Harvard, not a noted theater school. 
And in fact, the American Repertory Theater, which we're going to come back around to, was still pretty new at Harvard at That's the period right. when you were there. That's they, right. they went up there in 79 or 80, as That's I right, the early 80s, yeah. Yeah. So, so you didn't go to college looking for theater. You were doing I other didn't. Stuff. You know, I just... Um, I think I went to Harvard because I, I, you know, I liked Cambridge. I liked the buzz of that town. And, of course, it's a fantastic school. And I, you know, I I heard that the arts life there was really, you know, happening. And it was, and it still is. Even, you know, to this day, Harvard does not have an undergraduate theater concentration, although that's in the works. <laughs> Change ahead. Um, but, you know, what what it did for the students is it kind of freed you to make theater on your own. So Harvard, you know, has been known for, you know, all the crazies up there, you know, uh, Peter Sellers on down, you know, making shows in the swimming pools and dining halls and, you know, wherever you can make a theater, you could make one. And, you know, making big, big mistakes and, you know, trying things on your own as a, as a, as a, as a college student and, and then there was the ART, which was this tremendous professional theater right on the campus. American of, Repertory Theater. Yes, the American Repertory Theater, uh, founded by Robert Brustein, kind of as this beacon. So there you were kind of fumbling in the dark on your own, but then going to see shows. And at the time, it was, it was you know, to me, the most important theater in America. I mean, as I look back, even as a theater professional today, you know, the, the period of the 80s at ART was, you know, sort of unparalleled in terms of the work that was being done and the boundaries that were, uh, you know, being uh, broken in terms of aesthetic ideas on stage. Robert Wilson was there, Joanna Colitis, Andre Serban, Julie Taymor doing her, you know, earliest work, The King's Stag, you know, seeing plays like The Balcony and Endgame uh, done in staggering physical productions. Um, So, yes, I spent my college years you know, do, studying social studies, but, you know, wandering the halls of the ART, stealing the posters and, you know, putting them in my you dorm room. You can bring room. them back, <laughs> I know. I, I have, I have Joanne Acolyta's poster of the endgame that the Beckett estate actually tried to shut down, and they, they didn't, but uh, set in like a bombed-out subway station, mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, so uh, that those were my college years. So when, when did you give up on uh, the political career and decide, I'm going into theater? You know, I, I, I spent my freshman summer working for Ruth Messenger, who was a city council member for the Upper West Side, which is where I grew up. And um, I, I, you know, had a tremendous time working for her, but I, I had sort of this epiphany moment. One day I was sent out to represent her at, at a meeting of the Coalition of the Homeless. And, you know, the the woman in charge of Ruth's office said, you know, you're going to go there, you're going to sit in this meeting, and you're going to tell them that you represent Ruth Messenger and that Ruth supports the committee's work, and, you know, that's your function there. So I did, and I went and said my, you know, what I was supposed to say. And then the meeting went on, and it was all about how the food was going to be distributed through these vans all around the city and how the, you know, the, the homeless were going to get helped and reached and the roots of the the maps of the van was, and all of a sudden I sort of thought, you know, I'd much rather be in the van, like giving the food to the people. Like, what is this politics, you know, kind of, you know, placing your vote where it needs to be. And of course, that's, you know, an important part of our process in this country. But I, I think I just realized I like to be in the trenches. I like that contact with people. I like that idea of making the impossible possible, which is you know, really what theater is. You, you, you can get people together and, and, and in a confined amount of time, 
make something, you know, and you, you you don't have to go through so many hoops the way you might in a political process. And I just felt like that immediateness of the theater was where my heart lay. So I, I sort of started to move more into taking theater uh, seriously as a profession. You went to grad school. How quickly did you move to going to, to grad school? Because that was for theater. Yes, it was for theater. I, you know, I graduated Harvard and I went and did acting training here in New York City. I, I trained at the New Actors Workshop. It was a school that Mike Nichols, George Morrison, and Paul Sills founded uh, in 1998. And um, I, I, I did that training as an actor, and I, you know, finished, and I got those, like, headshots. You know, as a young actor, you know, you get your postcards with your name. and a, that, that, Those days it was a service number, you know, that you'd get in your card. And I got 600 copies of them, and I, I, I picked them up, and I looked at myself with my face in a telephone number. I said, this is not, like, what I d- did all my life for. I put them in a bag. I never took them out. And I started directing shows. You know, I, I saw all my acting friends you know, f- get out of school and sort of wait, you know, wait for phone calls and wait tables. And and I, I, I just thought this is crazy. You know, let's make something. And I directed my first play in a garden on 89th Street between Columbus and Amsterdam. It was one of those abandoned, you know, community plots that the neighborhood takes over and makes into a garden. And I passed it one day and I thought, this is like a perfect theater. And I went to someone, I said, can I, you know, have you ever done theater? Is it possible? Who would I talk to? They said, sure, you go to the community board. And I went and I said, I'd love to do Shakespeare, you know, free outdoor Shakespeare. Joe Papp being a huge idol, had not met him at the time. In fact, never actually met him. Um, and they said, sure. I went to the meeting. They said, there's only one rule. You have to, like, let the people garden. You can't stop anybody from gardening. <laughs> and I thought, that's great. Just like the Elizabethan theater. We'll do the Shakespeare and kind of, you know, get people's attention. And that will be the test if the show works, is if people will put down their shovels and pay attention. Um, so I started directing. And I directed, you know, in the trenches, in gardens, in classrooms, on streets, wherever I could. And I eventually took a group of actors from New York to Door County, Wisconsin, of all places. I mean, I'm born and bred in New York City. I'm a total, like, Manhattan girl. But Paul Sills, who was a great mentor, had a farm there, and he encouraged me to come and start a theater company there. Can we take a moment, and can you tell people who Paul Sills was? Yes. Because he passed away yes. only recently. Yes, and indeed. And was a major, major influential figure, but not a lot of people know yes, him Yes, major person for me. Um, Paul Sills... Uh, his mother was Viola Spolin, who was the author of Improvisation for the Theater, which is really the Bible of theater games. And um, Paul took the theater games that Viola, um, you know, used as a teaching tool and working with immigrant children in Chicago in the Hull House movement. And he started using them as as kind of acting work with professional actors. Um, he was from Chicago and went on to found Second City. Um, which, as you know, then spawned so many things. Saturday Night Live is one of the sort of the children of Paul Sills. Um, but what was so remarkable about Paul Sills is he was just such a great believer in what it means to make something out of nothing, making the invisible visible and the real sort of pure art of improvisation. And uh, he taught me um, acting, really theater games. And aside from the kind of art of improvisation, he founded theater companies his whole life. So when I was at a crossroads and wanted to make a company, I went right to him and he said, come to Door County. I'll introduce you to the community and, you know, you can make something happen here. So sort of under his wing, I spent about five years in Wisconsin, which was sort of this eye-opening moment for me of uh, America and, you know, what it means to make theater in a community. 
Um, and uh, that started with teaching, doing theater games, doing story theater, which was also a big thing for Paul Sills. Paul Sills is interesting also in terms of hair, did story theater, which was Grimm's fairy tales. He took Grimm's fairy tales and made them into kind of a theatrical form, which he called story theater. It was such a hit. It went to Broadway. Right in, around the same time as in hair. In 1968. Yeah. And I think, you know, the way I understand it from what Paul you know, told me was that those stories had a, a meaning, a, you know, a meaning for our country in 68 because they were about a certain kind of justice um, and, you know, uh, a, a kind of storytelling that reached beyond. He also put Bob Dylan songs in, in you know, in the stories. Um, so we did in Wisconsin story theater, uh, theater games for free. We taught. I ultimately did Shakespeare uh, outdoors for free and then, you know, started experimenting um, with other forms, rock musical versions of Shakespeare plays, outdoor site specific work in Lake Michigan, you know, a staging Beethoven's uh, Ode to Joy of the Ninth Symphony out in a beach with children and, you know, inter inter, inter- uh, interpolating Beethoven's diaries, and you know, it was sort of this opportunity as a young person in theater to um, experiment and and make work. So I had this incredible five years, and then decided I wanted training as a director, which took me to Columbia. Well, there's a very interesting phrase in an article about you that ran in American Theater a few years ago that said there was even the beginning of residents in that community actually wanting to get you a facility. And I love, I'm fascinated by what they wrote institutionally based theater presented responsibilities that challenged the primacy of her artistic vision and you declined the offer of your own theater now we're going to come back to that considering the job you've just yes taken. yes but it was it was as soon as it seemed to want to become permanent you decided to go elsewhere yes it was it was quite a moment I, I'll never forget it we were taken um, you know sort of artistic people, leaders in that community, took me to a, like an abandoned cheese factory. You know, it was an <laughs> unbelievable facility. They said, look, you can make an international arts center here, you know. And uh, I looked at my uh, a partner at the time, who's now my husband, Randy Weiner, and we said, you know, we could really do this. We could like make an arts center. We could buy a house. We could live here in Wisconsin. And I just, you know, it actually had to do with the institutional stuff, which I'll talk about. But it also had to do with the fact that I was a New York City person, you know, I it, not only having come to New York to do theater, but having been born here, I sort of thought, you know, Wisconsin actually isn't my home. It's New York City. And I it is not the center of the theatrical universe. It is not. And it's not even the center of kind of, you know, where I come from, my roots. And I, I just felt I wanted to go back to New York and tr- sort of, you know, make theater in New York in a way that I learned to do it and, and, and build bridges and, and, and do things that made community possible. Um, what daunted me about institutional theater at the time was just feeling like I didn't want to get tied down to uh, a, a mission statement that I felt would not be able to grow and expand with my growing and changing interest in the theater. And uh, I think at the time, you know, that was uh, in in the early 90s, I guess it still happens today, but somehow I feel it's a little different. You know, everywhere you turned, young people were making theater companies. And and the thing to do was, you know, make your mission statement. Before you even direct a play or figure out what you want to do with your company, what's your mission statement? And that seems so kind of backward to me because I thought, you know, you're going to write a mission statement. You're going to do one your first show, and then you're going to want to change because you're going to learn from your project. So 
you know, we did have a theater company in Wisconsin, and we called it Project 400 because we, the mission, because we had to have one as a not-for-profit to incorporate, you have to have a sort of mission, was to do 400 innovative theater projects. You know, we sort of believed if we could just keep doing theater, we would learn. And we got 400 because the oldest summer stock in America in Door County, Wisconsin, was celebrating their 400th production when we first started. So we thought if we could get to 400, How'd you, you know, do? <laughs> we got in the 60s, I think, and then we stopped counting. So you come back to New York. I come back to New York, To yes. go to Columbia? To go to Columbia. And I, um, I, I, I picked Columbia because of the incredible faculty that, that were at the school at the time. And, you know, that I, I really look at that time. It was this combination of Andre Serban, who was... Uh, teaching um, primarily in the acting department. But when I was at Columbia, he sort of taught the directors too. You know, we were thrown into all the acting classes and made to do all the Peter Brook exercises right alongside with the actors. And Anne Bogart, who was running the directing division. So you had this sort of like, you know, East European taskmaster uh, on one hand. And then Anne Bogart, this tremendous, generous kind of earth mother, you know, nurturing you. And, and you know, the, the kind of combination of the two was amazing. And you're also looking at two teachers who are, you know, actively working in the theater. So it was this amazing moment for me of not only, you know, learning about the theater, but seeing my teachers uh, as mentors. Well, you went from creating shows in a little park in you know, a little garden in New York with people planting nasturtiums during the second act. <laughs> yes. You went to a farm in Wisconsin for five summers. Then you mentioned Randy Weiner, who's now your husband. Yes. You and he created The Donkey Show, yes. which was originally supposed to be a very short run and it ended up running for six years, became something of a sensation here in New York. Yes. What was that whole thing about? How did you come up with that? And tell us, it's based on A Midsummer Night's Dream. That's right. Done in a 70s disco style. That's right. Tell us more about how yes. you created it. Yes, that was the first show I did actually when I got out of Columbia and I, and I, I was working with some grads, you know, like you do when you get out of grad school. You get your friends together, and we started. I, I, I tell everybody, you know, young theater artists, I say, you know where we rehearsed the Donkey Show, you know, this show that people, you know, perceive as this commercial hit? I say, we rehearsed it in the lobby of Dodge Hall at Columbia University, like after hours. You know, we couldn't even afford rehearsal space. Mm-hmm. We took the boom box, snuck in, and, you know, rehearsed in the lobby. Um the Donkey Show was um, an idea that Randy had, um, you know, to take and tell the story of Midsummer Night's Dream, but tell it through 1970s disco culture. And originally, he was writing lyrics. He was, like, going to write songs, you know. And, and, and to kind of research it, we started transcribing disco songs because Randy was in. This is before the really Internet was happening. You know, now you can get any lyrics to any song, you know, at your fingertips online. This was before that time. So, you know, we'd get sort of cheesy disco compilations from like the Rite Aid and then sit and <laughs> transcribe all the lyrics. And the more Randy listened to them, he said, you know, I don't need to write. These are amazing. How could I do better than, you know, Donna Summer and Thelma Houston and all these, you know, amazing uh, songs from the 70s? And so we decided that we would sample these songs, and that became very interesting aesthetically because we got we were very interested as as theater people, Randy and I, in you know which is a theme which I will bring forward to the ART of of kind of breaking boundaries down in the theater and this idea of bringing pop music into the theater and this mix of high and low culture, you know, taking something like a Shakespearean text and actually with Donkey Show we really copped the structure of Midsummer Night's Dream from the Benjamin Britten opera, which. 
does away with the framework of you know Athens and just focuses on the forest part you know the enchanted woods part of Midsummer Night's Dream anyway this idea of Midsummer Night's Dream being uh, you know 1970s disco culture this this enchanted woods and Studio 54 was a model and Randy and I you know were high school sweethearts in New York City growing up here and we spent our you know, teenage years at Studio 54, not quite when it was really hot a few years after that. But, you know, this idea of Studio 54 being this place where, you know, there was democracy on the dance floor, as it was called. And, you know, this this fantasy land where you could go and be anybody you wanted to be. And, you know, they were they were the Studio 54 boys, you know, that were like the fairies to Tanya's fairies. It's always a problem when you do Midsummer Stream. Like, well, how do you do the fairies? How do you make sense of that? Um, and then these incredible disco songs like uh, Don't Leave Me This Way, you know, I, I Can't Survive, I Can't Stay Alive Without Your Love. And we thought, my God, you know, that's that's Helena to Dimitri. You know, I am your spaniel. Use me, abuse me. So we started doing the donkey show. We did it, you know, really like low tech. I can't tell you how low tech in a little piano store down on Ludlow Street mm. um, in the back room we would take the stanchions from the restaurant across the street and Randy would put them on the sidewalk and hawk tickets you know he'd do anything to like <laughs> we'd, we'd, we'd put music in the doorway and make it like a club we had a, a, a one of the actors in the group her boyfriend was a DJ he played all the music live on records mm. he was able to mix the records you know it was like totally choreographed and he was mixing the records live and you know, it, it started to become this phenomenon. And Randy and I, who are always interested in audience, you know, we would stand at the door after the show. And every week, we were doing this at midnight, you know. More and more people came. And we weren't advertising it. We didn't have a press agent. And we thought, what is happening here? And we started taking people's names. And email was just starting. And we'd say to people, you know, how did you find out about it the show? And they'd say, oh, well, someone blasted my whole office that you had to come. And so we created this thing called the Donkey Show VIP list, where that if you came back to the show, you could get in free if you told a paying friend. So it sort of became this like grass. We had no seats. We took all the seats out. That was the first thing we did. So everybody stood. We could only fit about 100 people in the in the room. And it became this kind of underground cult hit. And it played at this piano store, you know, for about six months. Then we took it to the Pyramid Club on Avenue A. And we're talking, you know, still no one was paid. The actors were taking their costumes home in shopping bags. You know, mm. we had mylar that would fall at the end of the night and the audience would dance. And then when everyone left at four in the morning, the actors would pick up the mylar and show it to me and say, Can, should we keep this? And I would like dust off the cigarette ashes <laughs> and put it back in a baggie. I mean, it was so, you know, low budget. It was so <laughs> low budget. And then we ran it for a year. And by the end of the year, you know, um, producers started coming and we were picked up by Jordan Roth, um, who had a company then. He's now with Drew Jamson. And he took us to uh, the Flamingo, which was a nightclub in Chelsea. We ran it there uh, for six years and then took it to Edinburgh and London. We've done it in Madrid. It's currently playing in Seoul, Korea. It's been to Helsinki. It's, I mean, we did it in France. It, it was this unbelievable journey of this show, you know, just doing it because we believed in it. And, which is a theme really for me, that it had some connection with the audience. Because we were doing other shows as a theater company, little quirky things that weren't having audience come back. But this one hit with the audience. And you I, also had the audience participating. They were able to dance before oh yeah, the show yeah, and absolutely. afterwards. Yeah. Absolutely. There were, even when we took it to you know a more established venue and it was running you know technically off-Broadway, mm -hmm. we came to that moment. You know, We were like, do we take it to a theater? What do we do? And we said, absolutely not. We take it to a nightclub. And it was uh, what I used to think of as like, 
you know, a, a modern version of the Globe Theater because he had all those people standing like a mosh pit, like the groundlings. And then if you paid a little more, you could sit actually at mm. tables on the side, like the boxes at the Globe. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was loud and noisy and you could scream back at the actors and you could drink and you could do all sorts of things that, you know, like behavior that went on in the Globe Theater. I, I used to love that, that I felt, you know, we were we were doing something that was closer to the Globe, uh, you know, than maybe even the modern replica of the Globe Theater in London is doing now. You've done Shakespeare adaptations a number of times. You've done a version of Comedy of Errors, Winter's Tale. I think I saw Tempest. Why the compulsion to adapt Shakespeare? Mm. Why not just do Shakespeare? Well, you know, in new work, especially new music theater work, which is what really interests me, you know, we all know you can have tremendous music, but if the story or the book of a show is not strong, you know, you, you, you don't have a chance, really, to make a great evening of theater. So, you know, I, I just, I think Randy and I are just so deeply passionate about the power of Shakespeare and those stories and, you know, sh- and those stories that Shakespeare took, you know, not even, you know, there are the few kind of original stories, maybe, you know, The Tempest, but even Shakespeare was taking stories and robbing and stealing and, you know, building on kind of uh, archetypal kind of myths. And so really when we adapt Shakespeare, it's going to those sources, those 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 amazing stories that provide a, a, a dramaturgical structure and then finding ways to retell them using, you know, in many cases, pop culture to kind of make them, you know, to some people completely unrecognizable as Shakespeare, except, you know, the Shakespeare scholars who would come to things like The Donkey Show and get a kick out of, yes, I know, that was Act 3, Scene 2, that disco song, which we, you know, enjoyed when we got that kind of feedback. So what was it like to take Kiss Me, Kate? Which you did this yes, summer yes, up at, at Glimmerglass. Probably looking at your resume, perhaps the single most conventional piece of theater you yes. may have ever been oh, involved in. Oh, I know, in. I know, I love doing that. Um, you know, I think that's a great piece of a great piece of theater, um, and just so smart. And you know, what I enjoyed more than anything were those Cole Porter lyrics, which you know are so naughty. I just love it that you know he had the courage to write lyrics like that. You know, people get so upset about. You know anything that is is racy, and my God, when you look at those lyrics and brush up the, brush up your Shakespeare, you know you just you you, you kind of your jaw drops. Or always true to you in my fashion. Or always <laughs> true to you in my fashion. <laughs> or many other songs I same know, show. <laughs> I know. Um, no, I just think that's a, 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 an amazing an amazing show, and um, you know it was terrific to work on. It was terrific. I mean, you know what's great about working on things like Kiss Me Kate and you know the opera work that I do is they're just terrific pieces of work that are like from the canon. So as a director you get to just direct the hell out of them and you don't have to think about, oh, is the second act not working or the top, you know, when you do new work, so much of your focus on a director is how to make the piece strong and you're evaluating with the writers, you know, uh, the actual writing of the script. But, you know, when you you work on something like Kiss Me Kate or a Mozart opera, you can kind of like relax and trust the work and just uh, focus on the production. Well, there are two shows where we need to be sure to have time to talk about, both of which you're involved in creating. Eli's Coming, which you wrote and directed for uh, Vineyard Theater, and also Swimming with Watermelons, which is in part based on your own parents. Let's talk about Eli's Coming first, the music of Laura Nero and yes. that. Uh, you, you wrote that, you directed it. Are you a big Laura Nero fan? Is you that know, why you did that? You know, or? when Doug Abel, who's the artistic uh, director of the Vineyard, he called me and he said, do you know Laura Nero? And I said, I actually don't. Uh. Um, and he said, well, that's not a bad thing um, <laughs> because there are lots of Laura Nero fanatics. And I think Doug was interested in the fact that, you know, I wasn't 
completely, you know, immersed in her music and could come to it with a fresh eye. Um, so I really, you know, educated myself in her music and her life and her songs, which were also radical. I mean, what Laura Nero was known for, you know, sort of she had her hits that were made famous by groups, pop groups. But when you look at the way she... Um, created her songs, the fact that she didn't, you know, read music and she would go into the studio and talk to musicians in terms of, you know, play this like red color or green color. You know, mm. she was she was so far out and so wild and her influence of jazz and her work and, uh, you know, uh, John Coltrane and, you know, so many um, kind of radical forms that are within her songwriting. Um you know, all of that was so inspiring. And then I, I partnered with uh, Bruce Bouchel, who was primarily known as a journalist, and we put together a show taking her songs and uh, forming an evening of theater out of it. Um, you know, that was a tremendous experience because you, again, my interest in audience, you encounter an audience of people who, like a religion, came out to hear her music. You know, it was it was to be in contact with her soul and her music was like a religious experience. So, you know, I, I just love working on material like that, that sort of, you know, gets into other areas of culture that are not just sort of theater things. As if the donkey show is not an interesting enough title. How about Swimming with Watermelons? Yes. I, and I, and I, I kind of know the, the history of the title, but it's based in part on your own parents meeting during the war Yes, uh, in Japan. In Japan, yeah. And actually, to go back to one of your questions, how I got into this, you know, my father was an, an actor as a, as a young man, and then he went to Japan during the occupation and directed plays for the Army Entertainment Corps. So I guess I have this theater thing in my blood. Mm. You know, when you when you look and you think, hmm, why am I doing this? Um, so he met my mother. Uh, she was um, in Tokyo after the war, and she had had a very hard time, you know. Uh, she, she was Japanese. She's right? Japanese, Japanese, born in Tokyo, uh-huh. yeah, and had lost her parents and many of her siblings in the war. And, you know, was kind of left with nothing. But uh, what was striking about her background was that her father had been in the import-export business. My my grandfather, my Japanese grandfather, imported the uh, spider mum flower to the United States. So she had been exposed to America and American products. They, her parents put my mother in a Qua- Friends, which is a Quaker school here. There was a Qu- Friends seminary in Tokyo, and that's the school she went to. So she spoke English perfectly. So she was working at a department store during the occupation. Early in the occupation, my father went to her, and she had a Band-Aid on her finger, and he went over to her like a you know stupid GI and said, oh, ouchie, ouchie, you know, like in broken pigeon English. Which is one of the great pickup lines, ouchie, ouchie. Yes, ouchie, (laughs) ouchie. And there my mother said in perfect English, oh, it's just a little cut. It doesn't hurt that much at all, you know. And then, you know, they went on to have this relationship, which was in the early years of the occupation completely illegal. There were anti-fraternization rules and, um, you know, they had a love nest and, and, you know, all sorts of things happened to them, including their house being raided by, you know, uh, the army police. And, I decided to create the show. I, I had heard the stories over the years. Um, my mother passed away uh, before I actually created the show. So in a way, it was this experience of trying to learn about it, um, you know, through stories, uh, c- kind of uncovering a part of my mother that I actually didn't get to know, you know, stories that I learned from my father, like, you know, the fact that he never met her family in Japan, you know, and that she would insist that he would drop her off, you know, three blocks away from where she lived. You know, things like that that just sort of, you know, give you insight into, you know, what it was like to break that boundary, actually, for my mother to uh, not only 
date this American man, but then to come to America and then ultimately marry him in the early 50s when her entire Japanese family did not recognize the marriage. And that was just one of the storylines, your parents, the other storylines in, in the play as well. Yes, yes. So we took, I took, I had all these kind of photos and research and my father had all these friends in the army and I was working with my theater company, Project 400 at the time, and we created through improvisation um, a, a series of stories based on uh, American GIs in Japan uh, putting on a show. Um, and uh, we used pop music, another theme. Uh, pop music of the 40s. Pop music of the 40s, yeah. As opposed to disco music of the That's 70s. That's right. That would not make sense. <laughs> but it was. we actually used um, Japanese music, pop music that was uh, available at the time, and American pop music. And, We're talking uh, about like this early Sinatra and big band music, that kind of thing? Yes, exactly mm-hmm. right. And uh, even later than big band stuff, Anita Day. You need O'Day? O'Day. O'Day, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the convention was, you know, the GIs were putting on the show and they were, you know, plunking down a record and they would sing along to the record. Um, and, uh, you know, it was uh, this, you know, yet again, a kind of exploration of um, taking history and culture and mixing it together with kind of elements of, of popular life. And uh, uh, in that case, a love story. Well, I'm going to quote your own words back to you as we come around to ART. You were saying you left Wisconsin, quote, because I didn't want to get tied down to a mission statement that didn't grow and expand with my interests. Yes. So why... Do I wish I never so said later. that? I can't, I can't tell you how, how many reporters <laughs> yes, have said you. to me. But, uh, but uh, so, so why now do you want to be tied right. down or have the opportunity... Right. Um, to run one of the country's major institutional theaters. Right. Well, it's it's sort of, there are two things. One is, all my life, you know, I think even back to my days as a Harvard undergrad, I I always thought I wanted to be an arts leader. You know, I I, I was studying acting, then I went into directing, and, you know, you get involved as a craftsperson. You're completely involved in deepening yourself and your your work. Uh, And and that has been my journey. But... uh, all along, I kind of thought, you know, back to my interest in politics, you know, I want to run the Kennedy Center someday, or I want to run the public theater, or Lincoln Center, you know, I, I think, you know, secretly, I had these ideas of, you know, always thinking I would go in that direction one day. Um, so in my life as a freelance director, I, I in the past five years, I've been thinking, you know, if I want to do that, I have to start, you know, getting my track record in that area of the theater. Um and uh, I have to say, you know, a- as a director, even though I've been a freelance director, I feel like I've always thought of myself as more than a director. I've thought of myself as an entrepreneur, as a producer. And and it's gotten to a point, uh, it had been getting to a point as a freelance director, where I, I started to feel like making the work is half of the objective. And the other part of the equation is delivering the work and how you make uh, the work accessible to audience, how you market it, how you produce it, how you make it financially viable from a business model. All these things are things that actually I was starting to think about, you know, as much as what you do in the rehearsal room, even as a director. So, and it used to drive me crazy, you know, there's this culture, especially in the not-for-profit theater, you know, don't show the director the budgets, you know, don't show them the whole picture, because I think there's a fear that, you know, directors will just see the bottom line figure and think, if that's the budget, why can't I have more of it? Whereas my whole impulse has always been, show me the budget, and I can, you know, if you tell me that that much money has been being spent on one costume, I might say, you know, let's not do that. I'd rather you put that $5,000 into, you know, a marketing effort and I'll change the costume. I mean, that's really, you know, how I think as a director. So 
I, I've been actively looking at where I could throw my hat in the ring and start to get this kind of experience. And then, you know, ART to me is not your typical institutional theater. And I think that's why I'm just so, you know, uh, uh, grateful for this opportunity to, to take this theater on because it's, um, known to break boundaries. And in fact, uh, the mission statement when I got the paperwork from ART, you know, when I said I wanted to officially enter the search, they sent me all the official documents. And the mission statement, to go back to mission statements mm-hmm. of the ART, is to expand the boundaries of theater. And I read that and I was just totally floored. I thought if that is the mission statement of this theater, I can get behind that because what does that mean? That means we continue to ask the questions of what is theater? What does it mean to do theater in the 21st century? Where is our, where are our audience? What is the architecture we do it in? What does theater mean? You know, that that if that's the theater, I'm, 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 I'm able to completely 100% stand behind that mission and put my heart and soul and my mind and my ideas into this. And with the exception of Kiss Me Kate, it sounds like what you have been doing for your career now, which is creating that kind of theater. So you'll be able to continue. Will you be able to produce your own work there, do you think? I think so. You know, I, 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 ART also has this incredible uh, legacy uh-huh. of not only doing, you know, these, these world-class productions of classics, but premiering new work. And when I looked at the 40-year, or not 40-year, tw- that's hair, 25-year history of ART, you know, I was staggered by the world premieres of things like, you know, Philip Glass's opera of Orphée based on the Cocteau film. The, you know, the world premiere was at the ART. Uh, and, and and things like Peter Sellers directing Handel's Orlando at the ART in the early days. So, you know, opera, music theater, uh, Martha Clark's early work, you know. So so I, I, I look at that and I think um, what could be better than to bring all the kind of ideas that I have, the best projects I have under my wing, and give them a home and develop them at the ART. Now, we're a, you've been appointed, but we're a year away from your first season. That's right. So a year out, what's in your head that you think you'd like to do there? Obviously, the subscribers won't hold you to it, and you know right, it, it, right, isn't, right. this isn't a public announcement of right. what the season will no, be. No, of course. Yeah. Well, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to have a year, you know, to plan for 0910. And I'm looking at very specific projects right now because, you know, planning is of the essence and it's happening, you know, immediately. Um, but I think the theme for me, which is the theme of my work in the theater, is the audience and how I can kind of... Uh, reach an audience and make the theater I do there an event that must be seen. And for me, that's going to be um, projects that will take the theater out of the building, you know, the Loeb Drama Drama Center, take it out into the streets of Cambridge, into Harvard University, which is this unbelievable, you know, institution in our backyard with with an unbelievable uh, audience right there waiting of students and faculty and staff, um, and then this urban center of Cambridge and Boston that's, you know, filled with schools and uh, young people and an incredible music scene. And, you know, so for me, it's going to be uh, sort of making theater that uh, is is event driven, uh, which is what I believe theater should be. You know, it's not about, you know, what's that play, but really what is the theatrical occasion and to make it feel like uh, you have to be there and that it matters in a, as an audience member that you're there. 
that you contribute to uh, what makes the theatrical experience alive. Well, a couple of weeks ago in the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times, you were quoted saying, the number one thing that motivates me is the audience. Are audiences in Boston and Cambridge different than audiences in the Lower East Side of New York or, for that matter, in Central Park? In other words, do you have to tailor your, your work in Boston to the audience that's available up there, or is it pretty much the same everywhere, do you think, other than maybe the peninsulas of Wisconsin might be, a little, bit, <laughs> right. might be a little bit different. You know, gosh, I think with young, especially young audiences today in our, in our culture where, you know, information and music and taste and culture is is shared so rapidly, you know, from, from one person's bedroom to another person's living, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, it's not like you have to go to New York to get a taste of the scene anymore. You can get mm-hmm. it, you know, on your computer in a second. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, people just want to be in theater to feel alive. And I just, what, 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 what amazes me is how so many people feel like they're more involved when they're on the internet than they are at a theatrical event. I mean, I just, I, I, I you know, that they're, they're actually engaged and participating more, you know, on their computer. Mm. So, you know, for me, it's that audience, which is not about a city. It's about a kind of cultural demographic audience that um, is being shaped by the way we live our lives today. That's the audience that I want to reach. Well, obviously, we're going to watch to see what happens up at ART in a year. But there's rumors, of course, that hair may have a further life. And I'm just wondering whether the experience will have to fundamentally change from what's been in the park to if you go inside a proscenium. Right. You know, I just, I think we've learned so much from being in the park. And yes, there's the setting of the outdoor air and sun and moon and all those glorious things that you get outside. But I think there's something more fundamental that is going on, which is a kind of transmission of energy between those performers, this material and the audience. And I, that's what I'm looking at. And I'm looking at actually how can I create that if we take the show indoors to a location, uh, you know, that's inside. How can I just maximize that experience um, and create, you know, the ultimate indoor being that, you know, for me should be everybody saying, oh, my God, it was great in the park, but you got to see what they're doing inside that theater. You know, that's my goal. Well, let me reiterate that you can see Hair currently for free in Central Park through September 14th. Yes. And directed by Diane Paulus. Diane, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.